This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. I'm in trouble. I messed up. You sure now, are. Now, going to punch me in the face. And the, the gut. Th- That's a lot of gut to hit. You know I got lots of that right now, all that Hennessy. Hey, guys, we're here. It's Let Your Voice Be Heard. It's Sunday. I'm so happy being awake at 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. <laughs> What's up, guys? Good morning. I'm happy. You're happy. You're like a petty auntie. You sound like one, too. I, hey, I guys, happy. this is Selena Hill. Um, forgive me. I'm a little under the weather. That's why my voice sounds like this. She has SARS. No, I don't have. I have a cold. SARS. She got Ebola. <laughs> no, I don't, guys. Ebola I am contagious, Hill. though. So. Uh, yes, because you have Ebola. Because I have a little cold. I'm happy to be here. Welcome to the show. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, where we talk about foreign policy, social issues, and politics from a diverse millennial perspective. Alyssa, is it just me or is she now trying to talk with an accent? Uh, I'm, what accent am I trying to put on? I don't know. That's the sick accent. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the over-projecting because you don't feel well. Remember the episode exactly. of Friends when Phoebe got sick and it made her sing better? She was like, smelly cat. I was never into Friends like that. Oh, Silly, oh that's only, so only the whites watch Friends, Alyssa? Yeah, totally. If, okay. that's, that, if that's what you're saying these and days. And that made absolutely no sense. <laughs> yes, it does. Go ahead, anyway, Selena. yeah, so my name is Selena Hill on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me at Miss Selena Hill, and Miss is spelled with an M-S. Alyssa? Hey, guys. Um, I'm Alyssa Fuchs. Uh, you can find me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs. That's Alyssa with an I. Or on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs, uh, where I spend time, uh, you know, Twitter Ing, tweeting, tweeting, tweeting. That's that, that's what it is. <laughs> tweeting at Donald Trump and telling him that he's a loser. Um, and you can also leave a comment on the fan page, politically preposterous, which is facebook.com slash politically preposterous, or at poll preposterous on Twitter. Um, we're live on Facebook Live on the Let Your Voice Be Heard radio page. Uh, and I guess we'll be joined soon enough by Ms. Jackie Cohn, who's not here yet. But in the meantime, we'll throw you over to introduce you to that loser. The man. You know what? I'm not going to look at you guys because you guys are way too hurtful. But hello, Facebook Live. This is Stanley Fritz. You can find me on Twitter at Stan Fritz. I almost have 2,000 followers. With your support, I can get to 200,000. You can also (laughs) find me on Instagram at Stan Fritz because Selena made me pick the same name on social medias. But on Snapchat, I said, Selena, I'm not listening to you, beloved. So it is Dark Skin Swindle. You can also find me writing for the website of (laughs) I don't have a website right now. But I'm cool, guys. Anyway, all right, Snelly, uh, following that awkward introduction, we have a great show lined up. We're going to start the show speaking about Donald Trump's all-out war on the press and freedom of speech. I know you guys have been following his tweets, or if you haven't, kudos to you, because it's a lot to keep up with, and it's mind-boggling and also extremely frustrating and irritating. So we've, we've been on it. And we'll talk about how he's uh, been attacking the press via tweets and what these threats could possibly mean. Later on in the show, we'll be speaking about Harvey Weinstein. We know that he... Weinstein. Weinstein. Is it Weinstein? Yeah. It is Weinstein. Weinstein, Weinstein, whatever. But anyway, so... Potato, potato. Tomato, tomato. So he was um, allegedly, uh, finally... Um, being punished for the decades of sexual allegations, a sexual assault that he has been waging on women in Hollywood. So we'll talk about that later. And then uh, later on the show, we'll also talk about prison labor and what that what the epidemic is really doing to black and brown communities across the United States, particularly in Louisiana. 
Last but not least, it's that time of the month where we will spotlight <laughs> and honor. <laughs> she looked you're down terrible. when I said you're that. You're terrible. <laughs> spotlight and honor an inspirational millennial who is doing phenomenal things in their community and in the world around us. So we have coming on the show Diamond Craig, who I'm very excited to speak to later on in the show. And of course, if you want to let your voice be heard, if you want to tell me, if you want to wish me good luck or no, get well. Nobody wants to wish you good luck. No, maybe they want to like wish me to help me to like get better. Because I'm a little under the weather. You can do that. You can call us up at 212-650-6903. You can tweet us at Beheard underscore radio. You can also leave a comment on our Facebook Live page. We are on Facebook Live, and I just shared it. I think Alyssa did as well. I did. Stanley, did you? We got we got some people watching right now. Awesome. We got 10 people watching. So shout out to everyone who is watching via Facebook Live. Make sure you leave your comments. We have a great show lined up. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we're talking about Trump's attack on free speech. I'm sorry if I... Selena is dying, guys. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, it is me, Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Selena Hill. Of course, Alyssa Fuchs and Jackie is cat daddying her way to the studio now. She had to stop to go pick up some coffee. No, she's not here. I was just saying that to be interesting. Actually, is that her right there on the camera? No, no. I don't think so. That, no, unless Jackie became black over the weekend, it is not her. I don't think Jackie became black over the weekend. Oh, never mind. Selena? Yeah, so uh, we are back. Thank you for that illustrious introduction, Stanley. Um, Again, my name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley Fritz and Alyssa Fuchs. And as I mentioned, we are starting off the show speaking about Trump's attack on free speech. Now, despite the recent wave of catastrophic events like the Las Vegas shooting, massacre, and Hurricane Hurricane Irma, which has completely devastated Puerto Rico, Y'all's president, Donald Trump, has focused his energy and tweets towards trying to curb the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of the press. For two months, Trump, for months, not two months, actually, multiple months, he has been belittling reporters and denouncing stories in the media as fake news. But he took his attack on the press a notch up last week when he suggested in a tweet that NBC could and should have its broadcasting license revoked because it reported that Trump wanted to dramatically increase the country's nuclear arsenal back in July. In response to the report, Trump tweeted, and I quote, fake at NBC News made up a story that I wanted to that I wanted a tenfold increase in our U.S. nuclear arsenal. Pure fiction made up to demean NBC equals CNN. Then <laughs> does he even make any sense? He never makes sense, especially not on Twitter. In a second tweet, he he said, "With all of the fake news coming out of NBC and the networks, at what point is it appropriate to challenge their license? Bad for a country." Now that same day, Trump told reporters, and I quote. It's frankly disgusting the way the press is able to write whatever they want to write, and people should look into it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, despite being president, Trump still knows nothing about how the government actually works. In reality, there is absolutely no way Trump can take a license away from NBC because NBC doesn't actually have one. 
according to the Federal Communications Commission, a.k.a. the FCC, website the FCC only gives license to individual broadcast stations they do not license TV or radio networks such as CBS NBC ABC or Fox or other organizations which stations have relationships except to the extent to that to the extent that those entities may also be station licenses so basically Large news networks, they have affiliate stations that are owned by other entities. For instance, NBC has about 200 of, 200 of them. And also, like my, na- my network. Black Enterprise? No. For What's Eating Harlem, mm-hmm. which comes on um, New York City Life, is owned by PBS. PBS. Exactly. So that's an affiliate it's station. Public radio. Exactly. Public TV. What does Dipset own? What? Dipset. Stop it, Stanley. Anyway, they also have uh, uh, they also have owned and operated stations in big markets such as D.C. and L.A. So in order for Trump to wipe out the reporting of NBC News, he would literally have to upend the licenses of all its affiliates and all of the owned and operated stations. Not going to happen. Nonetheless, Trump has further proved that he is predisposed towards gutting the First Amendment and he has little to no understanding of how it actually works. All that said, now I want to open up this discussion to our panel. And, of course, to you guys who are listening, call us up at 212-650-6903. You forgot your parts, Lena? No, Jackie's not here to say it. Oh, yeah. And uh, you can tweet us at beheard underscore. underscore. <laughs> Radio. <laughs> and you can uh, leave a comment on Face. We never made no, one no, for that. No, one. We don't have one All for right, that. Facebook Live. Facebook All right. Live. <laughs> anyway, Facebook Live. Well, while while you're still allowed to leave a comment, you right, know, right, or uh, speak freely. Well, so well, let's start it there. So, Alyssa, what was your reaction to Trump's tweets about having the FCC shut down news organizations? I mean, and I saw you tweeting at him. Yeah, about no, this. I mean, listen, it's very concerning to me. Um, you know, you gave a good example of why, why it would be very, uh, or a good explanation, I should say, about why it would be very difficult for Trump to actually use the FCC to revoke people's licenses. But at the same time, um, it is very scary to hear a president talking about uh, revoking the licenses of the free press um, because that's the type of rhetoric we have heard traditionally and historically from demagogues, from authoritarians, uh, uh, from people that want to control their populations, um, you know, ev- in everything from fiction, like in 1984, uh, to reality, uh, like what Hitler does or Hitler did or what they do in North Korea right now. Um, but the other reason why it's potentially concerning in my mind is twofold. Um, one, even though, as you point out, it could be difficult to revoke the licenses of all the local affiliates, um, you know, like a station like us uh, um, and a show like ours, it would be very easy in, in some ways to get us off the air because, you know, we're a non-for-profit radio show that's run through WHCR uh, here at CUNY. And so if even if we did not violate the FCC rules... Um, An FCC complaint by Donald Trump against us would essentially be very problematic for the station. Um, And so that would would, in fact, shut us down. Right. That's just one example. And the other reason why it's concerning is just because, you know, this is a president who's literally going on and on about the flag and not standing for the flag. But he doesn't actually understand the ideals that the flag represents. Stanley. Stanley, what was your reaction to Trump threatening to shut down NBC and other uh, news organizations? Well, 
I just kind of rolled my eyes. This is what Donald Trump does. This is what he's been doing since he's been running for office. And these are the things that we've been complaining about since before he was elected. And now that he's elected, he's trying to do it. Um, One of the great indicators of like, you know, authoritarianism, as Alyssa mentioned, and dictators is and fascists is like their disapproval of any kind of criticism or media coverage that does not come from within their own lens. So, of course, he's going to continue to delegitimize NBC and CNN and and anything that is not Fox News or Breitbart because, one, he doesn't want his base to look at those places, and, two, it empowers him and gives him someone to attack so that people aren't focused on how incompetent he is. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, and again, if you're listening and you have a question or a comment, how did you react to Trump's tweeting about possibly shutting down news organizations? Call us up at 212-650-69. Zero three. Zero three. Okay, so my reaction. Number one, uh, first of all, I was completely concerned uh, more about the story itself. I mean, the fact that our president was in a meeting at the Pentagon and wanted to increase nuclear the nuclear arsenal that we have rather than decrease it like first of all that's not even legal like number two a number of presidents both republican and democrat have been taking action to decrease it for him to say like oh if we have nuclear weapons why aren't we using them like he said like preposterous things like that like he did not have a fundamental understanding of the totality that nuclear weapons and nuclearism could lead to in our world so that was number one and then number two i was like okay now back to what his focus is trying to shut down uh nbc and it reminded me of uh, the watergate era because during this time president nixon he told advisors to make it difficult for the washington post to try to renew the fcc license they had for a florida television station it owned um and in addition to that the nixon white house actually carried out a campaign against the press uh, even eavesdropped on reporters so to me it's like if you have a president that is trying to attack and silence the press obviously they have something to hide stanley well i see a common theme in all this white people are crazy no but it, we saw how things ended with nixon and back then there was some level of accountability not much because republicans didn't want to do much with him either but at least eventually he was called to the carpet this is scarier now because the Republican Party has not done anything substantial to push back against Donald Trump besides, say, a couple of half-hearted things when they're retiring. So instead, what we've seen is them support him every step of the way. So who's to say that he won't pressure them to push a bill that censors the media in some way or another? I wouldn't be surprised. Right. I mean, listen, I, I, I would agree with you there, uh, although there has at least been a few uh, Republicans that have come out. Like, for example, Ben Sasse uh, tweeted something along the lines of, you you know, the fact that whether or not Donald Trump was preparing to give up uh, supporting his oath to uphold the Constitution. Um, so that's just like one one person that gave a, a comment about it. Well, yeah, you're right, you're right, Alyssa. Republicans have said things. They have done nothing. That's all they've done. They've said things. They've tweeted. They're disappointed. But they have not actually done anything to hold them accountable. Right. No, I know. I, I, listen, I hear you. I was just I was just giving an example. But to, to actually to get to your point, um, there is nothing that would really stop Donald Trump from trying to pressure Congress uh, from making a law that would potentially revoke the licenses of some of these news organizations. Uh, um, however, it would, of course, lead to an on- 
onslaught of litigation about it. I mean, there is no doubt that the mainstream media news organizations would file lawsuits under the First Amendment against Donald Trump in a half a second. And almost undoubtedly, almost every single federal court in this country would likely strike down those laws, uh, even those that are currently being staffed by justices that were appointed by Republicans, because we're talking about justices that were appointed by George Bush's people, Richard Nixon's people uh, in some circumstances, Ronald Reagan's people. And while you may not have agreed with any one of those presidents on any policy, which sure enough, I didn't either. um, The fact is, those justices come from a time where when they were appointed as Republican justices, there was a lot more moderation, a lot more mainstreamness compared to now. So we're not talking about judges that are just getting on the bench now like Neil Gorsuch. We're talking about Republican judges that are very strong on the free speech front and that will strike down a law like that regardless of their party affiliation. You're, and, more, well, you're more confident than me. Well, well, I mean, I work in this field and I deal with federal judges all the time, so I p- think I have a chance to speak on that. Well, here's the thing. Based on what Alyssa said and based on what I said in my opening, I don't think it's going to happen. Should we even take Trump's word, uh, should we even take him for his word or is he just venting? So Donald Trump is aggressively stupid, but even a stupid garbage can gets a steak twice a day. Yeah. So so and it can be right twice a day. So you should listen to him because as incompetent as he was, and as much as he failed to get the Republicans to pass a repeal of the Affordable Care Act, he just signed an executive order to undermine it. He signed two executive orders to undermine it. So he obviously can get things done because there are enough smart racists in his cabinet to make things happen. So yes, he's an idiot and he will fail at most things, but that doesn't mean that he can't get something done. He's still the president. Right. I mean, and I would agree with that. I think we do have to take it seriously because that's sort of what happened back in the 1930s is that people did not take Hitler seriously. They did not take Mussolini seriously. In many cases, we are apt to repeat history if we don't take Donald Trump seriously. And while you're right, um, I think that it's going to be very difficult for Donald Trump to actually censor the free press uh, using uh, the law. That's not to say that he has not actually made the denigrated the press so much to get people to not believe them um, and by just by denigrating the institution. And so I do think that whether it's de facto, uh, you know, attack on the free press uh, the way he's doing it now or whether it's a de jour attack on the free press using some kind of litigation, we absolutely should take it seriously. Um, We should not poo-poo it off as like, oh, well, you know, the courts are never going to allow that. Well, like I said to you before, Stanley, I have pretty good accounting of federal judges being that I work in federal court all the time. But at the same time, I don't think I would agree with you that that still means we have to take it nonetheless, take it seriously, Um, because it's when we stop taking it seriously is that when we get ourselves into trouble, you know, I mean, like they say, Hitler wasn't Hitler until he was Hitler. Right. And so, like, you know, we do have to be vocal about these things and continue to speak out because at the end of the day, the free press is an important institution when it comes to maintaining democratic ideals. So, guys, if you have a question or a comment, you can call us at 212-650-6903. You can also tweet us at BeHerd underscore radio. Facebook Live, I know you're listening. I see the numbers. Leave us comments. We want to hear from you. And I do want to say one thing. The reason that I'm not as confident, Alyssa, and I want to trust on your knowledge and experience working with these judges, is because Donald Trump came into the White House. He defunded funds towards um looking after and, and, and fighting white supremacist groups. And now the FBI has created this new initiative to go at the black militant 
organizations and institutions. So BMIs, and I'm pretty sure I butchered the full name of it. And I know for a fact that because they've done it before, they will do it again, work to undermine these groups led by people of color not doing anything bad. So if they can do that and they can find a way to do that, why can't they go after the media? Right. Maybe not CNN or MSNBC, but maybe after The Root, maybe after Black Enterprise, maybe Smart, Very Smart Brothers, Univision, Let Your Voice Be Heard. They can do that. Well, you know, Alyssa brought up uh, some pretty good points when she was talking about the historical aspect here. Uh, Mussolini and other demagogues and dictatorships who have used uh, control of the media to quell, uh, to control populations and to quell dissent. And I wanted to actually uh, get delved into that more so because you made a really good uh, comparison there. And I want to talk about how, like, in history, we've seen this happen before. Um, like you mentioned Hitler. How did he control the press? And how did these other demagogues control the press in order to get things done? Right. So, and, 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 and just to add on to that, do you find it alarming that President Trump might be doing the same thing? Right, yeah. I mean, so in terms of Hitler, I mean, he had literally a propaganda arm of the Third Reich that was run by Joseph Goebbels, who was his propaganda minister. They literally put fake news um, into the mainstream and then eventually took over the press. Uh, so it was obviously done a little different. But even before then, Hitler would denigrate the free press um, and say that th- and, and do very similar things. I mean, he at that time, there was no such term as like fake news like there is now. Um, but imagine the equivalent. Um, the other thing that Hitler did was to say that like the Jews ran the media. Right. And we see that same kind of anti-Semitic trope now where we have people on the right that will say uh, that, oh, look at the all the Jews that are controlling the media. I mean, that's like they're. There's like, you know, on one level, yes, there are Jewish people that own media companies. That's, you know, a fact. But on the other level, like they use that trope of the Jews can control the media, which isn't true um, as, a, you know, an anti-Semitic trope. And that's sort of the same kind of thing that Hitler did back in the 1930s, um, which eventually we know the outcome of of what had to happen that when you talk about the way that Jews were treated during the Holocaust. So, you know, these are very similar things that we're seeing in terms of modern day stuff. If you look at North Korea, um, they literally dictate to the people what they should think, what they should feel. They do the same thing in China. They do the same thing in Russia. Um, You know, RT is an arm of the Kremlin and the Russian government. And actually, RT has now influenced our politics. And you got people on the left here uh, that listen to them. So even when the president or a person in charge is not directly attacking the free press, which is actually what we're seeing going on now, there are other things that people in power can do to control the press or to control how people feel about the press um, in order to denigrate the institution so that people don't believe it. There are a fair number of people that just don't believe anything CNN reports because they've heard the president say CNN is fake news. Um, So the president doesn't need to pass a law to shut down CNN. He's got enough people not listening to CNN because they think it's fake. Right. You know what? (coughs) Alyssa makes a great point. I agree. It's all about control. If you can control your image and you can control perception, you can control the way people think about you. On that note, we do have to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we will continue this discussion about Trump's attack on the press. Later on, we're talking about prison labor. And then last but not least, we have our dreamer and doer in studio right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Voice. Jackie is here today. Hi. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. And guys, I have some bad news, some disturbing news, some breaking news. Jackie Cohen is in the studio. 
So I know. Breaking news because I think it broke my foot. We're upset. Go ahead, despite, make it all about you, despite Jackie. Broken bones and you know, make wedding it, hangovers. I am. <laughs> make it all about you, Jackie. I am here. So yes, Jackie has made it in studio. Hi. Jackie Cohen. Um, I'm Selena Hill. I'm also here with Stanley Fritz, Alyssa Fuchs, our dreamer doer Diamond Craig is also here. We'll be speaking to her later on in the show. But if you were listening, you know that we were just talking about Trump's attack, his all-out war on the press. <clears throat> we spoke about how more than likely he is following in the same pursuit of people like Mussolini and Hitler mm. when it comes to trying to control populations through perception and through image control. It's very, very dangerous stuff. And Alyssa gave a great breakdown and a historical perspective of why that's relevant today. We also spoke about how and why this could possibly uh, really damage independent media outlets like Let Your Voice Be Heard. I mean, I personally don't think the FCC would actually uh, move forward in uh, revoking licenses and that other nonsense he was talking about. But as Stanley pointed out, you never know with this president and what he can do. So, I mean, we see what's going on with the U.S.-Iran nuclear deal. We see he, he just uh, turned back the hands of time and it came to DACA, Obamacare. I mean, it's, it's pretty horrendous. So now we're jumping right back into the conversation. Uh, and before we do, um, did somebody have a comment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what's so I've been watching the great Ken Burns documentary on the Vietnam War, which I highly recommend. I know I texted this group about it that you should definitely watch it. I plan um, on watching it's, it. It's great. And it shows um, Lyndon B. Johnson's response to a lot of the media coverage that the war got. And what's so notable about the public response to the Vietnam War um, was that the images that the public was made privy to through reporting, through turning on the news every single night, they were able to see the real brutality of what was happening in Vietnam, and it really shifted public opinion against the war, something that they hadn't previously had access to. And Lyndon Johnson was really angry at the press for, for showing this because he had a war that he was trying to win. You know, he was in a complicated political situation and was really, you know, there's some great footage or great recordings of him calling the president of CBS saying like are you trying to you know screw me but uh, in harsher terms no Jackie great point you're absolutely right President Trump is by far not the first president who tried to dissent uh, or dis uh, tried to silence the press or control the press when it comes to uh, something that's controversial like uh Jackie just said, Lyndon B. Johnson, he harassed Frank Staten, who was the president of CBS at that time, over his reporting uh, from the war zone in Vietnam. On top of that, even President John F. Kennedy tried to pressure the New York Times to pull its reporter out of Vietnam because of the critical reporting on the war as well. Uh, earlier in the segment, we also spoke about how Nixon, obviously, during the Nixon era, they tried to control reporters and really tried to bully reporters into stop reporting on the controversy and go the controversy going on during his White House by eavesdropping and other things. And then if we look overseas in Turkey, they just locked up a U.S. reporter because of the um, of their reporting on the ground uh, and doing things and, and just pretty much putting a spotlight on the government and what and um, and their human rights issues over there. So, again, this is something that has been repeated throughout time and we see it happening again. Um, I want it. Stanley. 
Yeah, I just wanted to add in oh, the yeah. Obama administration and the Bush Jr. administration both went after reporters as well. The Obama administration actually has a reputation for going hard at their um, sources. And I'll let Alyssa pick up from it because I think she has some more information. Well, no, no, no. I was actually going to just point out why these things are slightly hold, hold different. On. Can you talk about Obama? Yeah. Because I wanted to hear about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, the, so like when information has been leaked to suppress, like the Obama administration, like through the Justice Department and other means, has tried to go at the media outlets and has tried to block them from pieces of information and has even tried to go as far as like threatening imprisonment for like for reports that have come out in regards to the military or what they believe to be classified information. Didn't we see this during the Black part of uh, the Black Panther Party era as well? Yeah. weren't they going after or they weren't really going after Not, they were going after the black panthers but yeah absolutely but like that was more so like infiltrating starting issues and planting drugs i wouldn't not not the same as like media interference right i mean listen i want to dispel the notion that this what's going on now with donald trump is anything like any of those things um you know yes i acknowledge and admit freely that Every single president has had some kind of contentious relationship in the press. But I think by us trying to compare uh, Donald Trump or even, even say that there's a semblance of, of you know, what's the word? Um, you know, like similarity between uh, what Obama did, what Nixon did, what um, LBJ did, as you pointed out, and what Donald Trump is doing is like isn't correct because I think this is a whole lot more concerning. Um, I Like, for example, Obama had a contentious relationship with the press, but he was not going on Twitter threatening to shut down the news organizations because they were reporting things that he did not like. Um, you know, JFK did not go on, you know, did not go on. Obviously, there was no Twitter back then, but was not trying to shut down the press because they were reporting on things about Vietnam War that he didn't like. Sure, there has been contentious relationships uh, where maybe... Like you pointed, Jackie pointed out, LBJ called the news media and said, hey, I'm really not happy that you're reporting on these things. Or when Nixon tried to shut down the New York Times from printing certain things, which is the Pentagon Papers. Um, but I don't think that there's any ever been a time in history uh, where there, the president has literally attacked the free press and threatened to shut them down by revoking their license. I think that's a really different thing. Um, and I think we should not try and normalize it. Well, I mean. So there have been reports of Abraham Lincoln arresting reporters during the Civil War. So there's that. So maybe not trying to shut down the press altogether, but actually arresting and putting throwing reporters in jail. Jackie? I also think that this is a unique time because of our access to information through the Internet and social media. Right. And I think that plays a huge role here, certainly in the Trump administration. And, you know, the, the sort of way that reporters have traditionally been gatekeepers for information has changed. And, you know, what's scary about that is, I, you know, reporters work very hard to collect all the facts. If you talk to any r journalist, from the New York Times or from any you know broadcast publication right like there there's flawed journalists in many ways right but for the most part they really seek to speak out to the truth and find as much information as they can and present the most factual information possible and so when you're just tweeting out the news as it happened as a response you're not necessarily getting the full story you're getting like an impulse or you know an instinctual tweet from the president. So um, the, I think the way that information is being shared has changed and the president certainly feels more empowered to just like speak on his own without 
without needing the media, right? He feels that he doesn't need the media, although he he definitely does. Well, well, I mean, I'm he. I don't really think he does need the media per se because he speaks directly to his base via Twitter and, and he I lies. Think, and well, hold on, Alyssa. Yeah. He 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 does that, and he uses it almost as a propaganda vehicle because. He's not fact-checked on Twitter. He says any and everything he wants to say to make himself look good. And he pretty much uh, lies about anyone or any report that is contrary to how he wants to be portrayed in the media or in society. Joseph Goebbels would be proud. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. And, And that's to say that, you know, it is, I think that we are in a very unique time frame where, you don't like media is almost like a third party because if you want to speak to somebody, you don't really need, you can just use social media. You don't have to go through um, you don't have to go through media. But is it still is the press still very important in today's world? And that's the next question that I actually wanted to throw out there. Why yeah. is the First Amendment's uh, freedom of press provision still important in, today, in today's society, especially when it comes to independent media and mainstream media? Is it important? Why? It's important because if we didn't have free press, I couldn't call Ben Carson a knuckle drag and bootlicking Uncle Tom. And I couldn't tell you how stupid that Allegedly. Donald Trump was. No, factually. <laughs> and, you know, but, but more importantly, when you have times like this where the media does not share the voices of other people, you can create these spaces that we can have honest conversations. And free press is vital and important for that. Jackie? Right. And sort of what I was saying before, I mean, in this time where everybody's just speaking out of their rear end and nobody knows what the hell they're talking about, we really need smart, independent journalists to be able to do investigative work and present us with the full story and the facts. And that's something, you know. That's becoming more difficult, especially with access to social media and with fake news being a real thing. You need to have trusted, reliable sources that you can turn to when everything else seems cloudy because there's so much you know, factually incorrect information out there. Right. But part of the issue is with that is that people, a lot of times people don't believe the press anymore. And they don't believe the factual information. And part of that, I blame on the politicians and people like Donald Trump who constantly denigrate the press over and over and over again, which in turn makes people believe that they're not telling the truth or that they're not honest, even when they are giving some, giving the facts. But the other part of that you know, and we would be wrong to not call it out in certain circumstances has been the press themselves. When the press spends so much time focusing on, you know, literally spent so much time focusing on Donald Trump during the 2016 election. Right. We talked about that at length on previous shows um, and they did it. Why? Because of ratings, because he was good for ratings. Right. Um, and so, you know, and then you also have a situation where uh, in one circumstance, Donald Trump, I hate to say it was actually right. CNN reported something that turned out to be completely untrue. And so then Donald Trump could say, hey, look, I called them fake news and now they, they reported fake news. So, like, you know, there's, there's a problem with that there. Well, That's, that journalist was fired. The right. thing is, our president lies continually time and time after again and he's not impeached. He's still in office. And but so the, does Fox. But, like, but oh, so do a lot of politicians, right? And so that's not necessarily unique to Donald Trump. Politicians lie. Well, that's the, not news. I, I think that there's ethics in journalism that's still held and I think that CNN took appropriate action when that news was misreported but I do want to move on to another very important topic while we still have time and that is free speech versus social justice now the ACLU has taken a hard stance in favor of free speech even if that speech is hateful Uh, in fact a 2015 Pew Research Center poll reported that 40% of millennials think that the government should be able to suppress speech 
deemed offensive to minority groups as, compo- as compared to only 12% of those born between 1928 and 1945. So a younger people today are saying that uh, they have less faith in free speech than their grandparents do. Even in Europe, racist speech is not protected. And I want to get the panel's opinion on suppressing free speech if it happens to be discriminatory. Where do you stand, Stanley, when it comes (laughs) to free speech versus social justice? I think that we I'm going to I think I'm going to agree with the list on this one. And I'm assuming the list is answer. I think that we have to protect free speech. Even if it's even hateful. if even if we don't like it, but I also think that if you say something crazy, be prepared for consequences because I got a fade waiting for you. But um, the minute you start censoring one like piece of it, is like the moment when like you can have a case where you start looking to censor other things. And it's just the fact of the matter is, once you do that, like you you've lost your your ability to have free speech. Now that does not mean that I want to do what the ACLU did, which is mm-hmm. when the um the alt right wanted to have their march. The police and the people over there wanted to, them to have the march in a different area, so the ACLU sued Charlottesville to force them to have it in the main on the main street. I'm not going to do that, and I'm not, I'm not I'm not in support of that. But I do think that we should not be trying to block people's speech. What we can do is like this is like tell people what it is, so there's no gaslighting, which is we don't do now. But we should not like we should not smother it. Yeah, I this is a really really difficult issue to sort of reconcile with, and I I tend to agree with Stanley. You know, I but however. When you look at a group like the ACLU, which now has 200 of its employees signed on to a letter asking the organization, which has um, traditionally been very, very rigid in its policies towards free speech, to you know reevaluate the work that it's doing. I mean, they are an organization that says that it's dedicated to advancing social justice and civil rights, and yet they were literally helping the organizers of All Right Charlottesville rally obtain permits like I don't I don't know how as an organization that's you know while it promotes free speech and says that it's dedicated to civil rights then helps an uh, an organizing group that's dedicated to ending you know or dedicated to white supremacy obtain permits for their rally like I don't know how they themselves reconcile that well I think that and there were a number of ACLU lawyers who said like like morally they it was unconscionable. They had a really hard time fighting for these white supremacist groups. Nonetheless, it's their job because they feel like if they don't protect the most vile speech, then that makes the that makes everyone else extremely vulnerable to being suppressed as well. Alyssa, mm. yeah, I mean, listen, I, I I have to agree with Stanley here, and and you were right to um, you weren't putting words in my mouth, Stanley. No, I mean, listen, it, we have to be uh, you know very vigilant when it comes to protecting free speech and that sometimes means having to protect speech that we disagree with um you know there's a difference between hate speech and speech that incites violence if speech that in actually literally incites violence then it is no longer considered free speech under the first amendment and it could be subject to restriction um but in terms of like you know like you if you want to block one group from protesting then you know the next thing that's going to happen is your group may be blocked from protesting that said i also agree that when it comes down to permitting like the ACLU it was not a situation where Charlottesville said oh no these people cannot march at all period um which and then I would have agreed with the ACLU getting involved and saying no you can't uh you know get rid of their right to free
free speech just because you agree with what they have to say, disagree with what they have to say. Um, but the situation in Charlottesville was a little different. The city didn't say they couldn't march at all. It just said they had to march over here in a different location. Um, and so in that situation, I don't understand really, even as a civil rights attorney, why the ACLU felt the need to get involved in that and say, oh, no, we're going to represent them and say they have to have a permit over here. Was it not speech that incited violence, though? Um, I mean, I mean, it ended up inciting violence. Yes. In when it actually when the march actually went on. Right. Um, that's in in practicality when it happened. And I but, don't I don't understand, though. Right. Like, and, you know, maybe you can help me better understand this. I don't understand how a march that is calling for, you know, the end to like Jews and people of color is not hate is not violent. Speech, yeah. right like uh, so it, even if it's not super explicit they're not saying like go murder x y and z but it's still violent speech to me right yeah but that's it does not qualify as unprotected speech because it has to be speech in order to be unprotected under the first amendment basically it has to be what's called fighting words which means literally actually calling you out saying hey let's fight let's fight right now kind of thing or b it has to be the kind of speech that would incite imminent violence now you may argue that the things that they were saying were so harsh that they incited imminent violence and in reality they, they might and they, in reality they did um but the way the law works at it is you know just because that actually did happen that's something for the police to deal with on the ground once the march is going on that's not a reason why not to give the permit and begin with especially when the group shows up and they say hey we have these ideas that you may not agree with um like we hate you know obviously they say things like we hate jews we hate blacks we like you know we hate uh undesirable right. people um like those things in and of itself while we may find those hateful they don't necessarily um incite violence just on their own that's i'm not saying i agree with that but that's how the law looks at it um but just to come back to that for a second i've always believed that the way we fight speech that we disagree with or that's undesirable is to meet it with our own speech we should not look to the government to ban speech that we disagree with and find undesirable we should say hey we disagree with your speech. We're going to come, you know, counter protest you. And we're going to tell you why we disagree with that speech. We're not going to go to the government and say, hey, uh, politician, can you ban this person from speaking uh, because we don't like what they have to say? Because then what's it to stop somebody from that group to go tell their politician, hey, we want to blame Black Lives Matter from speaking because we don't agree with what they have to say. And right. that's, that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want people using the law to ban other people from saying things just because we disagree disagree with them so i've always said meet speech with speech you don't like what somebody has to say go get up in their face well, and tell them so well 40 <clears throat> percent of millennials would actually disagree with you Alyssa. even though i think that we all agree here hey, on the panel hey, it is what it is there so uh wrapping up uh, last question to the panel what would you say we can and should do to resist the government's effort to suppress speech particularly us working as an independent media outlet. Stanley? So, this is kind of weird, but you got to support the organizations like the ACLU and other free speech organizations, uh, particularly if you're a part of, like, groups for that are fighting for racial justice or black-led groups or groups that are uh, fighting against the current narrative. We are in explicit danger right now. So... You know, it, it's cool to talk about this, but we are in explicit danger right now. So support these spaces that will support you when it's time. Jackie? Yeah, and, you know... Trust, I guess, or support independent media and fight the this like fake narrative that's going on about fake news. And, you know, like when you hear your 
grandma telling you not to trust the New York Times because they're fake. Like, obviously, you know, you want to you want to stay skeptical of everything and you want to hold everybody accountable. And the media must always be held accountable as well. But, you know, speak out against that sort of fake, scary narrative, because once the Trump administration administration gains control of that public narrative, they can really get away with doing whatever they want. Right. I mean, listen, I agree with all that. Um, you know, I would say from my perspective, um, you know, like if you're an attorney, uh, then you should definitely be in a position to help to litigate some of these issues um, and, you know, continue to, uh, you know, speak out against these things, both in the courtroom and in the you know court of public opinion. Um, but also, yeah, I would say to people, you know, most people that are listening, I'm sure are not attorneys. Um, if you are awesome, uh, you know, definitely get involved in the way that you can as an attorney. But if you're not, continue to support um, media, you know, continue to support independent media, obviously people like us, um, you know, continue to speak the truth. George Orwell said in 1984, there was truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you were not mad. So I would say continue to cling to the truth, even in the face of everybody else telling you that you are incorrect. Absolutely. And I would just end the segment by saying this. Uh, in my opinion, Donald Trump has waged an all out war on media in order to control and manipulate the masses. And on top of that, it also energizes his political base, which is extremely hostile still to mainstream media news outlets like CNN, like NBC, which actually hold the president accountable. All they watch is Fox News and we see what goes on there. Donald Trump even labeled some outlets as the enemy of the American people. No, the press is not the enemy. The press shines that spotlight to make sure that what's going on in our government is is being done to protect our interests and protect our people. And that is exactly why journalists, reporters, and news outlets that are nonpartisan are so important in our society, and especially media outlets like Let Your Voice Be Heard. Because even though we do le lean left, and we are unapologetically progressive, what we do is we hold our president accountable. And we have to continue to do that because if we don't, what happens is you have other authoritarian countries like Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, which we spoke about earlier, who are now only going to be more emboldened to embrace those type of tendencies. So again, America is a leading example. And our president is the president of the free world. What he says and how he treats the press is an example to the rest of the world. And that's why we must continue to speak out and fight back with our words and with our voices, letting them be heard no matter what. And on that note, we do have to take another quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're heading straight into the news roundup right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. WHCR 90.3 FM, New York. And we are back. And here's my freestyle response to Eminem. Chicken wings and french fries, black lives matter. Unless you live in Mississippi, because they don't know what black people look like. Bars. Yeah, so we are back. What? This is Let Your uh, Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. That was Eminem lambasting Donald Trump in a prolific, prolific. Sound it out. Stop, stop, Stanley. Freestyle rap battle, which was, I, I loved it. It was phenomenal. It was evoking. It was emotional. And it was great political writing. But Keith Oberon, 
what's his last name again? Keith Olbermann. Olbermann. He actually got a lot of criticism for saying that for the first time in like 27 years, he actually supports hip hop because Eminem happened to come out with this freestyle rap. And then, you know, Black Twitter went off saying, Black Lives Matter, we don't need Eminem <laughs> to validate our causes. Right. Keith Oberman can just go somewhere and screw himself. So it's why a whole big pe- thing. Why don't people care about Keith Oberman's opinion about hip hop in the first place? <laughs> right. I mean, like, <laughs> what relevance? They were saying, like, he only cares because a white rapper said it. So he's an old white man. Right. Well, like, why, why would he, he doesn't care about Jay Z. You think he's in the room listening to Amigos? No. Like, no. Who cares? Like, white people are going to white. Let them. <laughs> But Eminem had bars, and he flamed Donald Trump. And if you guys are wondering why we're talking about this, by the way, this is the news roundup. This is what we do. We talk about news stories, hot takes, freestyles, and things that make me have panic attacks. Yeah. <laughs> what did you guys think about the freestyle? Uh, you know, I thought it was good. I've always been a pretty big Eminem fan. But, you know, I, I well, not even on the this Keith Olbermann thing, because I don't care about that. That's just stupid drama as far as I'm concerned. The one criticism that I saw about it, um, which I thought was worth mentioning, is about how, you know, Eminem has used his career in hip hop to say unsavory things about groups of people uh, that usually, you know, deserve protection. Like, for example, Eminem, uh, you know, made like a lot of women, a lot of comments <laughs> against women and made a lot of comments against gay people in the past. And M.M. has always defended that stuff about by saying that, you know, it's entertainment, that he doesn't really actually mean those free things. free speech. Um, and th- yeah, right. it's free speech. And, and it is free speech. You know, like I said before, people can say what they want, even if we disagree with it um, or find it undesirable. But I, I think that's the more, you know, it's like, who is Eminem? I mean, and I like Eminem. I've always been a big fan of Eminem. I've, you know, but who is Eminem now to come out and be all political and say like, oh, all these things are important um, when... Like for so long, he was like, well, I'll say bad things about gay people and I don't care if the left hates me. So it's just an interesting contrast. But this is not his first time being political. This is not at all. In 2004, he put the song out Mosh against George Bush. And like he was like, it it didn't get put on the radio because he explicitly said F George Bush. And, And yes, like his past with LGBTQ people and women is extremely problematic. And, you know, we need to have a deeper conversation about that. And maybe we shouldn't over time. But, like, I still appreciate this. And he's still one of my favorite rappers. Really quickly. One I, mean, favorite? Oh, I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite rappers. Well, look, look, he almost reminds me of Bill Maher. I mean, Alyssa, yeah, you defended no. Bill, Maher, right, Bill Maher, who has who has been very problematic when it, com- when it comes to yeah, LGBTQ issues, when it comes to Muslim people and anybody who happens to be of faith. But we say, hey, he's progressive. But so, but, like. Em- I don't. Just like. Just <laughs> for like, the record. Just just like Eminem has said problematic things about the LGBTQ people and women, well, guess what? That's hip hop, period. So if you're going to criticize Eminem for that, you got to criticize every rapper because Jay Z has been misogynistic. Right. Hell. I mean, and listen, not for nothing. Like at the end of the day, you know, yes, we can call it out, but it's entertainment. Donald Trump spent the weekend at the Value Voter Summit where you know what they were handing out in the swag bag? A book about why being gay is a sin and about, uh, you know, why, like, you know, all this, like, crazy garbage that was not even true about gay people and about homosexuality. Um, So, you know, like, it's like, to me, sometimes we get too caught up in focusing on, like, I don't know. I, I would rather focus on how Donald Trump, the president of the so-called free world, right. goes to the Value Voter Summit, which literally thinks gay people should be killed versus yeah, right. about what Eminem says and about I, gay I people. I do think group. as much as I do not like Eminem, nor have, have I ever, I do think one notable thing about him speaking out against Trump is that he is someone who's a white man f- who grew up, um, who 
you know, grew up a working class family, right? And like, this is like the typical person that we think is a Trump supporter. And so he is like flipping that on his head and speaking out against One Trump. One more thing about that. At the end of that freestyle, he explicitly said, and any of my fans, if you support Trump, here's your chance. Choose your side. And if you can't choose, I'll choose for you. F you. Right. Yeah. And I, you know what? I'm extremely happy that Eminem, as the best selling rapper of all time, is using his platform to uh, become an ally with anybody else who is being discriminated against under the Trump administration. That's Look, he spoke, up. he spoke up for Colin Kaepernick. He's he put a fist in it. No, no, he's I'm the best selling that. rapper yeah, of all the, time. Yes, he is. Look that's that up, so Stanley. Depressing. He is the best selling rapper of all time. Hold on. Spe- that's what you guys are like looking at me. Yeah. Of- that, I just can't believe that. Hold on, we gotta well, get to it. more white people nonsense. Sure, wait, go ahead. wait, before we do that, I, we we gotta get to wildfires, which is not white people nonsense. Oh yeah, wildfires. I was in California last week when that uh, when you, the wildfire Selena started. started the wildfire Selena actually, guys. Started the fire. She farted on a tree and then <laughs> it burst into flames. Not it's really, it's burning, really bad. Listen, it's it's where you know we have. Um, my boyfriend's family is from the area where Jackie these wildfires got a are. Boyfriend. I do. Ben, shout out to Ben. Um, and you know this is happening in Santa Rosa and Sonoma and Napa counties, and it's really caused devastation to that area. I mean, I think over twenty thousand buildings at this point, and I, I think that was a few days ago, so it's probably much more. Um, have been completely destroyed. I mean, people's homes, they've lost everything. They had a couple minutes to run out of their house before the fire took over completely. And it doesn't seem like there's really an end in sight right now. There, You know, the winds are so, um, so high that there, it's hard to keep track of where the fire is moving to. So it's very scary stuff right now happening in Northern California. Right. And just in terms of industry, it's not only affecting, you know, people who are losing their homes and all their possessions and belongings. It's also uh, having a great, a huge impact on the wine industry in Napa Valley oh, no. and on the <laughs> marijuana industry, oh, no. uh, the legal marijuana industry, which is potentially going to create a marijuana shortage throughout oh. the state of California. Oh, okay, um, you know, yeah, well, because it's not allowed to be imported. Well, and thus, um, <laughs> no, but mind. You know, the, the, before we go to our last story of the day, the one thing I wanted to say about this, which I was saying before while we were on a break to the Facebook Live crew, which is um, we've had three huge major hurricanes in the past, uh, you know, three months, uh, which is Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, and Hurricane Maria, which has caused major devastation across Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, the Caribbean, um, and elsewhere. We now are having a wildfire that's completely burning out of control with 90,000 people that are being displaced. And this morning they announced that Hurricane Ophelia is heading towards Ireland. Ireland! Ireland does not get hurricanes, okay? So climate change is real. Uh, We are causing it, and we are reaching the point of no return, where there there is not much we're going to be able to do to stop these things. We're going to continue to see big storms. We're continu- going to continue to see displacement. This is the number one issue that is going to be a national security threat to our livelihood here in America. And Republicans couldn't give two issues about it. Speaking of hurricanes touching things that no one asked him to, Harvey Weinstein. So as you guys may know, Harvey Weinstein is a white man who does things in Hollywood. I'm not sure of what, but apparently he does. He was the... Um, uh, he was a top don't Hollywood care. producer. He's been her- and he was and behind the He's the top fiction. sexual harasser don't in Hollywood. Don't care. Um, he has been allegedly. Sex- we don't well, even know. A lot of pro- what, what matters is He is a white man power. who has money, who has gotten away with sexually assaulting and harassing women, who has for also years. bullied women for years, just like much of other people in Hollywood, allegedly. And despite people knowing about this for years and even making jokes about it at awards all of a sudden people care because white people are gonna white yeah i mean no people in power people in power are going to 
you know, manipulate and control yeah. and take advantage that's, of people that, without power. That's probably period. more accurate, but I'm just here for the white people slander. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's really messed up when you, you know, this story was was um, broke by the New York Times, but there's been a lot of investigative stuff done since then. There's You can hear audio of him in a hotel with a model um, who confronted him who was wearing a wire, and you just hear him pleading with her, like, come into my room, come into my room. You know, Ooh. this is going to be okay. But this is something, like you said, that people have known about for years and have been joking about. There was, like, I, I heard a clip from 30 Rock, um, Tina Fey's show, where they were joking about it. I mean, this is something that was sort of like the norm in Hollywood, and now all of a sudden there's a huge spotlight put on it, and everybody's like, oh, you're you're out of here you're done but that just goes to show you how in industries where there's and it's not just hollywood you know i'm sure it's in politics it's in anywhere where people are seeking to obtain power you see this kind of manipulation take place and it's something that we really need to like look at carefully and not just normalize and you know let go well and here's the thing now Gwyneth Paltrow who was quoted in the New York Times saying that she was also sexually harassed or maybe even assaulted by Harvey Weinstein there's clips of her explicitly thanking Harvey Weinstein when she won her Oscar so she's on stage and she was like you know thank you Harvey Weinstein and there's a number of other people who were like thank you Harvey Weinstein but for this and no, what what I'm saying. So I She's mean, playing devil's advocate. She doesn't right. believe this. I mean, listen, Lindsay Lohan said it went on and defended Harvey Weinstein. Well, okay, but that's people defend him. Wait, wait, wait. Before I don't, I don't think that Lindsay Lohan should be equated to to Gwyneth Paltrow in this instance because <laughs> Lindsay Lohan came out and was like, you know, I never had an issue, and therefore everybody's wrong. And she also I think when him. it comes to Gwyneth Paltrow and other actor uh, actresses that. Um, you know, were harassed or assaulted by him, thanking him. I mean, this is like an abuse of power, right? Thank like, you. it's like right. any abusive relationship where you're being controlled and manipulated and you are fearful of, you know, losing your position in, you know, in the structure. And so you're you're manipulated to think that everything's fine and normal, right? And right. so we shouldn't, like, victim blame here. We should be very careful before we do that. Thank no, you. I mean, listen, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, what I was going to say is we should also not pretend that this is something new in Hollywood. I mean, this is just the, the last... Yeah, or anywhere. But this is like the last vestige of the old days. Um, you know, you ever watch the show Mad Men, uh, which was the advertising agency. It wasn't Hollywood. Um, and women are literally treated like pieces of meat. Uh, so it is really no surprise. But I don't know that it's even the old days, right? Because look at what's been going on in Silicon Valley, right. where you have I mean, all these CEOs. That's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, it's it's nothing. There's nothing old about this, it's right? This is days. as modern as ever. And yeah. I'm glad that they there are these men that are going down for it. Unfortunately, the president of the United States did not meet the same fate, and you know, not get the job that he wanted because he was sexually harassing women and admitting to it. But, you know, I'm glad that there is a spotlight being put on this issue and that women, at the very least, are feeling more empowered to speak out against their sexual assault. This country still does not value women, and that's why you can have the president of the United States be president, even though he bragged about sexually assaulting women. So even though I'm happy that Harvey Weinstein is getting dragged, we have a deeper issue in this country where we literally hate women, and we have to address that because if we don't, there will always be victims you never hear about. Absolutely. And uh, I would just say that it was almost like Harvey Weinstein was like a rite of passage. It was like you had to endure or succumb to some type of sexual abuse or assault or harassment in order to make it to the next level. Like he was almost like that gatekeeper and it was disgusting. But he has been removed from the academy. But, you know, who's to say what happens to Roman Polinsky, who was actually charged with a sex crime or Bill Cosby, who was also alleged with a number of sex crimes and rape. So I mean, and Bill like, Cosby's another great example of somebody who 
we all knew did this thing and sort of ignored it for years until much more recently it was brought back to light and actually investigated. But he's another person who did this thing and we knew about it. It wasn't brand new news when it came out a few years ago that he had sexually assaulted these women. Alyssa, quickly. No, I mean, listen, he's not going to be the first abuser and he won't be the last one. So, you know, that's that's basically where I'm going to end it at. All right, guys, and on that note, we are going to take another quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're talking about prison labor and questioning, is this a new form of slavery right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard? And later on in the show, we'll speak to our very special dreamer and doer, Diamond Craig. Don't go anywhere. As we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you were just tuning in, why are you just tuning in? Anyways, I'll forgive you. Where have you, you been? Exactly. This is Stanley Fritz. I am in the studio with Selena Hill. Of course, we have Jackie Cohen. And then we have the Diamond Craig. She's coming up for the Dreamer and Doer segment. She's dreaming. She's doing. And her name is literally a jewel. But guys, <laughs> we are not here to talk about jewels right now. We are here to talk about something else. The world, it's on fire. No, literally, the world is on fire. As we speak, if you have not watched the news, the world is ablaze, in California at least. And we've been dealing with these wildfires all week. So far in Northern California, 40 people are dead. Hundreds are still missing. Families are being forced to evacuate. It's like we're living in one of those chapters in the Bible Selena's always yelling at me about. But this time, (laughs) it's in real life. But here's a fun fact, something you probably did not even know, guys. 40% of the people fighting those fires, guess who they are? Yeah. Incarcerated people. What? That's right. Incarcerated people. And they are working for $2 an hour. That's pretty good, isn't it? No. That's actually a pretty high pay for most (laughs) prisoners. Yes. Last and you know what? Like it's funny because you don't think that like prisoners are doing work for two dollars an hour or for free. Because last I checked, Abraham Lincoln shot slavery in the face. And it was over up until, you know, him and Biggie Smalls were shot in that car and then they both died and then we were okay (laughs) again. But actually what's happening is when the 13th Amendment was passed, there's a piece of it that a lot of us don't actually pay attention to. And that is Section 1. And there it says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party, simply put, has been incarcerated, will be able to do free servitude. And I butchered that because I lost my spot on my notes. But more (laughs) or less, it's just saying that people who are in prison have no constitutional rights and can be forced into labor. And what does that mean? Well, we have 2.2 million people in prison right now, actually more than that. And under, besides a few exceptions, inmates are required to work if cleared by medical professionals at the prison. Punishment for refusing to work includes solitary confinement, loss of good earned time, loss of family visitation, and of course, still being forced to go do that work. That is the current system that we are living in. And it has become very, very clear that it is a problem because if you did not know it was happening, there was an interview that happened earlier this week from a New Orleans police chief in which he said that, hey, I don't like prisons any more than anyone else. And we'll play that clip later, but I want to paraphrase it now. But if we don't have these low-level offenders in our jails, who's going to wash the cars? Who's going to serve the tea? We also know in one of Hillary's earlier books, she talked about having prison inmates who were her servants in the governor's mansion and how it frazzled her at first, but then she got used to it and she was okay. And then, of course, there was that huge tweet storm that happened last year in which someone visiting the New Orleans, Louisiana State House for the first time realized that every single person working in that state house that was not an elected official, the janitors, the people serving food, the people cleaning up, the people handling maintenance, They were all incarcerated people, all working for between two to 40 cents an hour. 
That's right. And it brings us here today to have a conversation about what the hell is actually happening. If slavery was abolished in 1865, why is it 2017 and we still have people working for free? And to start this conversation, I want to do it the way that I usually do and kind of just ask a simple question. How do you feel about these slaves, Jackie? It's definitely it's slavery, right? Like it, it irrefutably. And I think that it's interesting to hear that there's so much prison labor being done to maintain the prisons themselves. I think that if these were positions that were being paid at least minimum wage, um, like any other sort of industrial position, um, people would be less happy and willing to, um, you know, build more prisons and, and lock people up. I think they would be much more conservative in who they sent to prison in the first place if they knew that they had to pay so much money to maintain them. Right. I mean, listen, obviously I work in criminal justice. I have for a while. This is not something that's new, as uh, Stanley pointed out. Um, And it's also not something that only happens like in the South or in California. Right here in New York State, we have a prison labor system where uh, people in New York State prisons mostly press license plates, but they also um, make the desks and the chairs that are in a lot of our public schools. Um, And they do these things because it says that they say that it saves the government money um, in the long run in terms of, you know, like providing uh, tables and chairs and supplies for uh, public schools and that ultimately it saves the taxpayers money, which may in fact be true. But from a human perspective, despite the fact that this is technically legal under the Constitution, that doesn't make it right. Remember, um, Martin Luther King in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail said, uh, you know, there are two types of laws, those that are just and those that are unjust. um, And that just because something is legal does not necessarily make Mm -hmm. it just. Um, And so I would say that, you know, yes, should prisoners be allowed to work? Absolutely. Because prisoners actually like to work. They don't not, they do not want to work. You know, obviously I work with a lot of people that are incarcerated and you speak to most of them. They want to work. They want to have jobs. They say having a job is the best thing that you can do when you're in prison. It, it gives you something to do to pass the time. But the issue becomes when we now use these people as slave labor and we pay them literally two cents for a job that we would normally pay somebody minimum wage. So I actually like Jackie's proposal. I don't know if that was meant to be a proposal, um, but if we actually were to pay people minimum wage to do these kinds of work, then people would actually potentially want to reduce the prison population uh, because they would be saying that it was costing us too much money to incarcerate people uh, versus the fact that it actually was saving us money, which is something that I just pointed out. It's definitely something that we have to deal with. Selena. Yeah. I want to switch gears on you a little bit because we had two people answer the question so far. So I'm thinking about in, in New York City in Harlem on 125th Street and 3rd Avenue. And I, I've talked about that area a lot because you have a lot of people there who are drug, who are, who are addicted to drugs. You have a lot of homeless people, a lot of people with mental health issues. About two years ago, when the Pope came to visit New York City, he decided that he was going to go over there. And Mayor de Blasio, quote unquote, cleaned the area up. What that really meant was that they got the cops over there and they arrested all those people and threw them into prisons. Those people are now going to be low-wage workers. So in a system like that, even though it helps our economy... I just want to correct one thing. They put them into jail, and jail and prison are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while there is jail labor that is low-paid, we just want to make sure that we're given clear indication of what's going on. At least most of this stuff applies in prisons when people are sentenced inmates and not necessarily in jail when they are awaiting trial on a crime that they may or may not have committed. You're only in jail for one year, right, Alyssa? Uh, well, no, you well, could you could be in jail for longer if you're fighting a case. But if you're sentenced uh, to a if you committed a crime, a misdemeanor and you're sentenced to go to jail and the sentence is for a year or less, then, yes, you go to jail, not to prison. 
Thanks for the clarification, Alyssa. So now we're talking about all these people who are once in the streets and they had some real, some serious issues. Some of them go to jail. Some of them get charges that end up having them go to prison. And now they're doing forced labor. How, how much help is this, will this actually be to these people who needed more assistance than they needed to be under a new like level of imprisonment? Yeah, and, and that's exactly why I'm against this type of uh, systematic ill. I'm more for <clears throat> restorative justice. What does I, that look like, though? I think that, first of all, most of those people that they were collecting in rounds on 125th Street suffer from a mental illness or drug addiction. And simple, like they need to be rehabilitated. And mm-hmm. I think that when you have people who come from suburban areas who happen to be white what happens is they either their community or their family has enough money and their community has the resources to put these type of people in hospitals and mental institutions and to and to keep them there and to make sure that they aren't doing any harm to themselves or to uh, the greater society but i think that when you have people who are black and brown and poor society has completely forgotten about them and we don't try to protect them instead we demonize them and we criminalize them and basically what we're doing is we're criminalizing the poor we're punishing the poor people because they don't have the means to afford a lawyer and to get out of jail or to get out of prison so what happens is if we really want to stop this problem we need to take the money and the corporations and the privatization of prison we need to stop that because you have all of these companies who are caught up in prison welfare and they're investing in these prisons so that they can make their products for a, a smaller fee and then what they do is they lobby these politicians so that they can continue to protect them with laws and that's it right there so spoiler alert that was my closing we can skip yeah. the end of the show but, but we should just end the segment now yeah no, let's I'm turn the mic off yeah <laughs> no no just kidding but uh so jackie i want to throw it to you i know you had something to say but i also want you to answer what's the difference between jails and prisons and before you do please guys give us a call Number is 212-650-6903, or you can tweet us at BeHerd underscore radio. Facebook Live is always lit. We see you commenting. Please leave comments there. So, Jackie? Well, I think I think the difference between jails and prison is something that Alyssa would be better equipped Which to. Which I literally answer. just no, no, I, I actually meant that as, like, a personal opinion. What's the difference between slavery and, and, um, and um, pardon incarceration? Yeah, incarceration. Um, I don't think that there prison is. Prison workers and slavery. Thank I mean, you. I think that it's... As as is racism in this country, it's a more like covert form of slavery, I guess, you know, for for people that don't really think too much about these issues. But I think that it absolutely is a form of slavery. And similarly, you know, there's there are prison abolitionists who are advocating to get rid of all prisons. Right. Because they think that there is no benefit to incarcerating people in this way that, like Selena mentioned, restorative justice is is actually what works. Um, We look at recidivism rates in this country and we know that prison does not necessarily cure people of all ills. And if anything, sets people up for future failure so that they enter into prison again. And so then they are then enslaved over and over again. And, you know, are forced into this sort of slave labor where they don't make a living wage. And, you know, it's there are literally people who profit off of people's incarceration, which it which seems ridiculous to me. But it's a great way to get free labor to make the product that you want to make. Right. It's a great cost saving method, which is what we saw in the South during slavery. And so I think that we should be giving, you know, it seems like such a radical idea prison abolition. But is it really when you think about the types of conditions that inmates are living in under and, you know, the type of labor that they're engaged in? I don't think it's that radical of a thought. 
Thank you. So, guys, we are going on a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. WHCR. I don't want uh, state prison, okay? They are a necessary evil to keep the doors open that we keep a few or keep some out there. And that's the ones that you can work. That's the ones that can pick up trash, the work release programs. But guess what? Those are the ones that they're releasing. In addition to the, in addition to the bad ones, and I call these bad, in addition to them, they're releasing some good ones that we use every day to, to wash cars, to change oil in our cars, to cook in the kitchen, to do all that where we save money. Well, they're going to let them out. If you are confused, oh this is not a clip God. from 1862. This is actually from a couple of days ago. And yes, this is Sheriff Steve Praktor talking about why we need low-level offenders in prisons. Alyssa? Right. I mean, he's literally talking about the new Jim Crow. I mean, there's no surprise that the people he's talking about, majority, are black and brown people. I mean, we, after slavery ended, we then had Reconstruction, and then we had Jim Crow. And then when Jim Crow finally, quote-unquote, ended, we then decided to use the prison system as a way to keep people enslaved, um, the majority of whom are black and brown. So it is no surprise that the people who he's talking about, the good people that he wants to use as laborers are black and brown because the prison system is literally used as a way to continue slavery. Um, Michelle Alexander wrote a whole book about this. There are numerous are black and brown because there are numerous other people uh, who have written books about this. I'm getting interrupted by myself, apparently. Um, And so it is no these comments are not surprising. Our prison system is literally built on the backs of keeping people enslaved by using the 13th Amendment. And if you are, you know, if you are now you're laughing and throwing me off. Um, and, and when I'm trying to make a serious comment, um, and if you really want to be annoyed about that, you should watch the documentary 13 by uh, Ava DuVernay because she does a really, really good yeah, job of definitely. addressing this during that documentary. So I like know? Facebook Live, Alyssa, better. I just, I think it's funny that Alyssa's interrupting Alyssa. It's <laughs> yeah, like that's Inception. <laughs> it's an interruption in the interruption. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Selena. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that... Steve uh, Steve Pratter there. It was mind-blowing, that comment. Ugh. Like, number one, he sounds like he's talking about animals or cattle. It doesn't yeah. even sound like he's talking about human beings. That's number one. Yeah. Number yeah. two, 66% of Louisiana's prison population is black. So he's undoubtedly right. talking about black and brown servants uh, washing his car? Like, washing the cars of law enforcement officials. Like, it's absurd. And the fact that he is so ignorant to admit it. Like, we already knew this was happening. Yeah. We already knew that they have these private conversations amongst themselves when we make these decisions on how many beds they need in these jails so they can house these prisoners and round up black and brown people to do this type of work. But to admit it, I'm like, this is Trumpism on crack. Okay, Think about it. Think about it. Trump all the, all the time talks says things from a very uneducated, <laughs> ignorant perspective and says the most barbarous things. He called water big. Like he's always saying something. <laughs> ocean. He literally called it and, ocean and, big. And, and, and he gets no and he, there's like no repercussions. But it's not even it's not even Trump. This is like the original sin of this country, right? right this is absolutely. just speaking to what this country has always been and always believed in, at least white people in this country, is that, you know, the the need to enslave black and brown people to wash their cars and do their work for them and you know that i think 
they they got away with convincing people it was just prison you know it's people that deserve to be there quote unquote because they were in prison for crimes violent crimes they committed but this is someone saying literally quote unquote the good ones we're letting them go when they could be washing our cars and picking up our right, our garbage. which is essentially to say we're we don't want to let people out of prison who have done their crime and done their time because they we because need to we enslave to, them yeah, and keep them working. Um, and it's backbreaking work too for the most part. It's not just washing cars all the time. I mean, you started off the segment by talking about the wildfires. Literally, people risking their lives. Most people don't become firefighters. Why? Because firefighters run into a fire when everybody else is walking away. Now we're telling prison. Hey, guess what? You're going into the fire. Right. Um, and, you know, those are considered the elite units, the firefighting units yeah. in California. Those are the jobs that these prisoners want uh, because they're given the most freedom right. and they're paid the highest. So I have a question shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, and this is something that we hear a lot. And I, I talked a bit about prison abolition um, before we went to break. You hear often when we talk about um when we talk about prison, you know, what about the people that are really violent, that Ooh. really committed crimes that are heinous, you know, like serial killer level or like just, just just love, you know, that that cannot be rehabilitated because of the, the nature of their crimes? How, you know, how do you Charles Manson, right? Like, how do you deal with those people? Do you let them go? Can they be rehabilitated? You know, like, what is the answer there? I mean, listen, I would say there are some people that really are so terrible that they probably should never get out of prison. Um, you know, and I think we're we do ourselves a disservice if we're not honest about that, like somebody like Charles Manchin, like somebody uh, some of the people that are currently being housed in the federal supermax in Colorado um, that, you know, like the 1993 uh, World Trade Center bomber, for example. But the flip side of that argument is if you look at a country like Norway, uh, the longest sentence in Norway is 21 years. The guy Anders Brevik Bering, who killed uh, 98 people at that, um, you know, that camp. Uh, it was like a camp for children he, the max amount of oh, time right, he right, could right. do yeah. is 21 years and wow. actually if you go look at the prisons in Norway the goal of these prisons is to rehabilitate people and what they find is that even the most violent people uh, people like this guy Anders Breving Beric um, are for the most part rehabilitated now there is a provision that lets them after 21 years renew whether or not that person should be released so there is a possibility um, or at least a contingency where they could keep him in prison forever um, but in the United States our sort of the way we look at corrections is lock people up forever and throw away the key uh, regardless of whether they could be rehabilitated or not uh, guys, if you have a question or comment, feel free to call us up at 212-6903. So, so the way I feel about it is it, sort of like the example that Alyssa just gave. And even in um, in other countries uh, across uh, in other countries in Europe and even in the Middle East where they don't necessarily like their prison system doesn't look like ours. And they literally try to rehabilitate people. I'm a strong uh, believer in rehabilitation and that whole like that argument of well, what about like the Charles Mansions of the world? And like those are far and few when it comes they're to the exceptions. Right, they're, they're not like, the rule. It's an anomaly when it comes to the people who are really being uh, locked up, and who the and, and it's it's anomaly also when it comes to the people who are <clears throat> filling this population who happen to be black and brown and normally uh, poor. And I also I wanted to just go back to 
uh, talking about rounding up black and brown people because in the 19th century, there was a system in the South called convict leasing uh, in which African-Americans were rounded up by police and charged with minor offenses like loitering so that they could be sold back to plantation owners as cheap labor. This is happening again, except for instead of being sold to plantation owners, they're being sold to uh, corporations like Walmart and Victoria's Secret. Right. So I think it's almost an excuse to say like, oh, but you have people that are going to rape and murder. I, I mean, the way that if we look at the reality of a situation, that's not who is largely being imprisoned. Right. No, I mean, I would agree with that. The, the people who are extremely violent who maybe should stay in prison are very few and far between. Uh, it is not the majority of the prison population. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned earlier the thing about uh, private prisons because private prisons create even more issues uh, because of the fact that private corporations like Victoria's Secret like you pointed out use these prisons for prison labor um, so that the the workers aren't paid very much however um, and I don't you know I wanted to uh, bring up a comment that we're getting from Darren Mack he said incarcerated people are fighting fires in California for two dollars a day and they can't get a job as a firewoman or a fireman when they're released right. that's another big problem that we need to deal with which is if we are going to be putting people to work and like I said at the beginning, a lot of prisoners do like to work. Number one, we should pay them more. Even if we're not going to pay them the full minimum wage, they should not be getting $2 a day, especially not to engage in dangerous work. And number two, when they're released from prison then they should absolutely be able to seek a job in that field because that's the whole point of rehabilitation. If this person had a job fighting fires and they now know how to do it, then why shouldn't they be able to get a job when they get out fighting fires? That said, we also have to answer the question of how do we respond to conservatives that make this argument? I don't agree with this argument, but conservatives say... You committed a crime. You have to do whatever we say when you're in prison. We shouldn't have to pay you. Why should we give prisoners minimum wage? You know there's conservatives that say that. How do we respond to that? Thank you for that question, Alyssa, because it brings me to the question that I want to ask the, the panel right now. And I just try to answer this as quickly as possible, guys. Do you think the system can be fixed? And I want to start with Jackie because we haven't heard from her in a bit. Uh, answer my question first. What was it, like? What? Why are these people who, you know... Well, just, we're are, low on time, well, okay. so just the first So, like, question. I don't think the point of prison is to rehabilitate anybody. I think it's to enslave people and to keep people out of the public view and to answer a much more complicated problem with, like, a really bad solution. And so I don't think the point is... You know, some people do become rehabilitated in prison depending on what prison and you know what, what level of yeah exactly but i don't think that's the norm i think can this be fixed i don't you know it's there's a it's in the Bush. bill of rights right like or in the constitution right it's an amendment in the constitution the 13th amendment that allows this i mean that is something really difficult to change is it something that we're going to see anytime soon I don't think so. I, I, you know, but I think that uh, these conversations are really important and I think it's important to understand what's happening. It's really difficult to understand what happens in prison, right? You have people on lockdown. It, we, you know, it's, unless you're there, which many of us are not and hopefully never will be, it's very difficult to understand what it's truly like inside of a prison. And so it's sort of for most people, the majority of Americans, it's out of sight, out of mind. They don't have to worry about it. But I think it's something that we do. It's a moral obligation to America, uh, to us as a country, to address this issue and seek change. 
Right. I mean, listen, I agree with that. And just to answer my own question in terms of how to respond to conservatives, um, I think the best argument actually is to meet them where they're at. You know, you've always talked about that, Stanley. Um, Libertarians, uh, like meeting people where they're at. Libertarians, um, they're very against the prison system. One of the people who, believe it or not, has been influential in the criminal justice fight has been Rand Paul. Now, I may not disagree with Rand Paul on anything, and I definitely don't agree with him on health care. But I think in terms of meeting conservatives where they're at, it's to tell them, Listen, prisons are big government. If you are truly a conservative and you truly are for small government, then you should want to reduce the prison population. Um, And in order to do that, we should pay prisoners for their labor and we should give them the skills so this way when they get out, uh, they can take those skills and use them to get a job because we know that when people get out of prison, if they have skills that they can use to get jobs, they're more likely not to go back to prison. At the end of the day, uh, Dostoevsky once said, the degree of civilization in society can be judged by entering its prison It speaks volumes about America when you look at our prisons and look at the way we treat prisoners. Um, It shows you that the degree of civilization in our society is extremely low here in America. Stanley? Yeah, to answer your question on can the system be fixed, I'm an eternal optimist. I think that we can, and I think that this country actually has the resources to do it. If there was a massive overhaul on how we treat our prisoners right now, excuse me, our, our incarcerated people right now, of course this could be fixed. Number one, why don't we give them the psychological care that they desperately need? Many of these people are here because of some type of trauma, some type of abuse. Something happened when they were a child or in their past life or earlier in their life. And then they, they because they did not know how to deal with those issues, they struck out by either murdering or stealing or just doing something like that. I think that if we can give them psychological care, I think that if we can educate them, I think that if we can pour more resources into giving them a work um, worker skills and then giving them degrees then they can come out and be better people and we've seen it happen time and time again the problem is we keep extracting these resources so that when they come out they're a victim of recidivism so and that's what we need to stop so a couple of weeks ago i went to a training and we were talking about structural oppression and someone said something that really stuck with me and we were talking about the impact of obamacare and, he, and Obama, when he was president, would always say once people started getting the benefits of Obamacare, it'd be very hard for Republicans to take it away because you would have shifted an, ent- an entire institution. And the facilitator of that training said, you're absolutely right. Institutions feed the facts on the ground. I think we can absolutely change this. We are already shifting the conversation. We are shifting the structures in the in, for the institution of prison and the institution of, the crim- of criminal justice. We're fighting. We're pushing. What it's going to take now is to have people continuing to push the needle, force the conversation and fight because the, the moment we are able to make a, a shift in the criminal justice system, whether that be in prisons or jails, we automatically change the conversation and we change the facts on the ground. A great example of that is a campaign to close Rikers. Two years ago, you would have been laughed out of a room for that. Yeah, that's right. Hell, a year ago. You would have been laughed out of a room for that. But now we're not talking about Rikers Island as a place where you have these savage criminals. Nope, we're not doing that. We're talking about all the people who are there for no reason, all the people who are there because of poverty, all the people who are there who could be useful citizens. We shifted an institution and it changed the facts on the ground. So that's what we have to do to change this system. We'll be right back, guys, after this quick break. When we come back, it's diamond time with the Dreamers and Doers. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, my name is Selena Hill. I have my co-host here, 
Jackie Cohen, Alyssa Fuchs, and Stanley Fritz. And it is time for the Dreamer Endure segment. Now, this is an original series that we have here on Let Your Voice Be Heard, where we spotlight an inspirational millennial who's doing phenomenal work in their own community, as well as in the world surrounding us all. And today, I would like to welcome Diamond Craig. She is an educational consultant, aspiring physician, speaker, and she's the founder and president of Purposefully Pretty, Inc. Now, in establishing Purposefully Pretty, Diamond and her team pride themselves on inspiring young women apart uh, young women to be confident in the direction and going in the directions of their dreams they also create avenues and opportunities to aid them in pursuing their purposes and making their dreams become a reality now since starting purposefully pretty diamond has been featured on new york one like Jackie, who's also featured on New York One. Uh, she has received the Civic Leadership Award from Queensboro President Melinda Katz. She has also received a number of other awards and recognitions. She was also, uh, she had the opportunity to be part of the White House Initiative African American Women Lead Summit for Education Advancement of Black Girls. Plus, she's been featured on SA. SABC News in South Africa. Lastly, Diamond has become an advocate for helping young women of color in her community and beyond. Uh, she she pursuing uh, pursuing careers in medicine and STEM. Uh, meanwhile, she's also pursuing her own dreams of becoming a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Stony Brook University. So, Diamond, obviously, as I just said, you've been up to a lot of great work when it comes to inspiring other people, especially young girls, uh, young girls of color. And you're also working on your own craft as you pursue getting your uh, doctorate degree at Stony Brook. And you have a nine to five. I'm pres- no, so I quit. Oh, so you're doing purposely pretty in school full time. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I want to start the conversation by having you talk about that transition from working nine to five to now pursuing your dreams full frontal when it comes to pursuing purposely pretty and going to school. When did you quit and why? Okay. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me, Selena. Of course. Um, Well, I quit my job in August. Um, I quit my job the middle of August. And I just felt like my job, it was not fulfilling me anymore. Um, I was working as a research associate um, at NYU Langone Medical Center, and I loved it. I was working at NYU for about five years. I started in development, which is pretty much nonprofit work, and um, I was transferred to emergency medicine research, and I absolutely loved it, loved it. But it came to a point where I felt like I wasn't growing anymore, and I was becoming more and more obsessed with seeing my vision come into fruition. Um, I just wanted to see Purposefully Pretty grow more, and I couldn't do it while working a nine-to-five and trying to get into school and just doing everything. I had to kind of channel my focus into what was going to grow me and uh, help me in the long run. So Absolutely. So when and how did you develop this desire to live a passion-driven life and then help others do the same? 
I don't know. I think it kind of came naturally. Like, so I, I quit. I'm sorry. I graduated college in 2012. And um, like the undergrad, undergrad. Yes. And like any recent uh, college grad, I was a little confused as to where I wanted to go. Um, so I got the job at NYU uh, working in development. I was sitting at the front desk uh, as a receptionist and I was so bored. And I'm the type of person where I can't be idle. Like I have to do something. So um, I started a blog called purposefully pretty and on this blog I would uh, talk about like myself things that I've experienced and um, also um, during this time I became like I guess Instagram became really big I don't know that's when it became became big to me (laughs) and I was seeing um, like so many people like uh, young women and um, the the standard of beauty and I kind of wanted to combat that because what beauty is it's inside is having a purpose um so uh, that's what the purposefully pretty blog became and eventually um, eventually it uh transitioned into um, a club I reached out to some people who I knew had a passion for giving back to their community and um we all came together we had our first meeting in the attic of my church and um a month later after that initial meeting, we started. We invited all the young women that we knew, and we started what pur- what purposefully pretty is today. Absolutely. So. And now you have a great team. How many people are on your team when it comes to purposefully pretty? We have nine people. Wow, mm-hmm. that's immaculate. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like th- that's great that you have so much support, yes. and you have so many people doing different parts. And you know, your your website looks amazing. Thank you guys you. have these great workshops. I want to actually talk about the workshops because you host them at different schools yes. in the community, including one that's called hashtag I am purposefully pretty talk Mm -hmm. about that series so what the I am purposefully pretty series is when I decided to go into full-time entrepreneurship I needed a source of income obviously while in school so I created the I am purposefully pretty workshop series um during um through this series I'll go to different schools and different organizations and pretty much help young women identify what their purpose is in addition to helping them find out what their purpose is I kind of do uh confidence and character building workshops with them because if you don't have good character and you don't have the confidence to pursue your dreams knowing what your purpose is doesn't really mean anything Um, so that's pretty much what the I am purposefully pretty a workshop series is it's helping young women identify their purpose and preparing them to go confidently into the direction of their dreams why do you think it's so important to really build up the character in young girls especially in today's society which is heavily driven by social media. I think that's the main reason, actually. Um, we see people like Kim Kardashian and Amber Rose and Black China, and they're rising to the top based on their bodies and who they're with and who they're having children for. And I kind of wanted to uh, show young women that while that may have worked for them, it doesn't work for everyone. <laughs> and that's, in my per- in my personal opinion, that's not a way that I would want to go to reach uh, certain levels of success. And I wanted young women to kind of look at what is within them, um, look at what is within them, um, their da- their dreams and their talents to uh, actually make their dreams come true. 
Right. So no, 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 no. You're, you're doing fine. And <clears throat> so why is it important for you to empower and help these uh, young women, in particular young women of color, understand the importance of tapping into their purpose and who they are internally? What you're saying, it sounds like to me, is that you don't want to put a lot of fixation on your outward appearance right. or, you know, or, or focusing on how beautiful some some people are, which like like Kim Kardashian, she built a brand on her beauty. Right. And and, you know, to me, you know, that that's her thing. You know, I don't um, I don't necessarily do that, but I don't necessarily bash her for doing that either. But what you're telling young girls is you don't necessarily have to go down that path. Yes. Right. And why is it important for you to speak to them, especially young girls of color? It's and I feel like it's important uh, for me to speak to them because I growing up, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't have that confidence or the character to kind of pursue my dreams. It wasn't until I started Purposefully Pretty where I tapped into my purpose and I gained that confidence and I gained that support that I needed. And I wanted to be to young women what I necessarily didn't have or I wasn't growing up. Um, So everything that I've learned, all the mistakes that I've made and everything that I've been through, I kind of want to teach young women so that they won't make some of those same mistakes and they can be great. So, and yeah. why do you think you know you're talking about your own your own path and how you you know came into your own and became a woman of confidence? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I have that same testimony. I think mm-hmm. that we all go through that that awkward stage at a, as an adolescent where you feel you don't feel like you fit in and you feel like you try to you know focus on your looks or how you talk or whatever it is for acceptance. Um, how is it that you are able to come to this place where you say, you know what, I'm confident in who I am? Um, I think it's an everyday journey. I am confident in my purpose and what I'm doing. However, I do feel like it is a journey. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is a journey. It is a journey. Um, so I'm sorry. Can you repeat the yeah, last part? Yeah, of the yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Like because I, I feel like, like for me, for instance, yeah. when it came to uh, really becoming confident, as as I became older. I think I grew with more, I became more confident. And I also mm-hmm. had like a great support system. Right. Like these people around me, like Stanley, Alyssa, Jackie, and like particularly Stanley was always in my ear, like Selena, you're great. And you should demand a higher salary or you shouldn't be working for free or you shouldn't be doing this. And eventually like I really started to internalize that. And now, you know, when you see me uh, on TV or you see me on radio, mm-hmm. you see me doing whatever you're doing, you know, I do project that same confidence, but it took a lot of time and it took a lot of support. Right. And like luckily for me, I had a great support system. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I didn't have purposefully pretty, uh, you know, as a young girl to really, you know, to, to help me maybe uh, get this way or become this way earlier in life. But I have it now. So I'm saying like, what was that eye awakening moment for you where you said, you know what, I know who I am and I want to pour this into other people? I think when I came to terms with what my purpose was, um, that's what gave me the confidence. When I finally figured out, like, this is what I'm meant to do in life. What is your purpose? I feel like my purpose is to give back to my community, um, to give back in the health and the medical uh, career, the medical profession. Um, I feel like I'm placed on this earth just to give back and to pour into people and inspire people to identify their purpose and pursue that purpose. Um, So I think when I came to terms with what my purpose was and I knew 
what my plan was in order to make my dream come true, that's what gave me the confidence. Like there's nothing, no one can tell me that this is not the path that I'm supposed to be on and what I'm supposed to do. Absolutely. So, yeah. And I know another big part of Purposefully Pretty is mentorship. Yes. Um, can you talk about the mentorship initiatives or program that you are doing through Purposefully Pretty? Yes. So we have our Goals Taken Action Mentorship Program. And in this program, we pair young women with a mentor. And I just want to give a special thanks to all of my mentors because they're all volunteering their time and their energy to pour into young women. Um, and we have monthly uh, outings, monthly workshops with the mentors and mentees so that they can bond, so that the young women can feel like they have support. Um, one thing I always had was the support of my family, um, my friends, and my Purposefully Pretty team now. They're, they are such a strong support system. And I see that a lot of young women don't have that. Um, so I wanted to provide that for them, um, whether it's from the Purposefully Pretty team or their individual mentor, to to kind of guide them as they transition from young women to young adults and help them stay on the track of their purpose. Um, so that's the Goals Taken Action Mentorship Program. Absolutely. And what type of results have you guys seen with the girls that you've been mentoring? So uh, we've seen wonderful results with our young women. Um, we had some young women that started with us uh, about five years, well, turning five in November. Um, so uh, we had some young women that started with us when they were in like eighth grade, ninth grade. Now they're in college. They have confidence. They know what their purpose is. Like if I ask my young women who are in college, uh, what are you majoring in? They know off the bat. Whereas some people go into college and they're like, oh, I don't know. I want to figure this out. I got to figure that out. I see that the young women that have been a part of Purposefully Pretty from the beginning, they have confidence. They know what they want and they know the direction they're going. And that's the that's what we wanted in starting Purposefully Pretty. We wanted to have them tap into what their purpose was from a young age. We wanted to have them focus and on that path and have a plan to make their dreams come true. So... The, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> now, is there anything um, like do you like exactly how do you give them those tools? Is it is it like through conversations? Do you guys actually have like uh, a curriculum? How how is it that you really empower these girls? So uh, we have a number of um, different ways that we empower the young women. The first being the goals taking action mentorship program, providing them with mentors. So as soon as a young woman registers for Purposefully Pretty, we give them the option and their parents because we like to have the parents involved as well. We give them that option to have a mentor or not. Um, most of them do sign up for a mentor. We, we pair them with a mentor based on what they want to do, based on the mentor's background. Um, um, yeah, so that's the first uh, way. The second way is that we do uh, monthly to bi-monthly workshops. Uh, these workshops cover everything from identifying your purpose, body image, social media, uh, peer pressure, having confidence. Um and we just bring the young women together. We do interactive workshops with them and we talk to them. Um, and we also allow them to talk to us. Sometimes young women, they feel like their voice their voices are not being heard. So we want to let them know that we are here for you. We listen to you and we care about you. Um, 
The other way is that we provide uh, volunteer opportunities for them. Um, we actually have a trip coming up. Um, for the, We have a program called Purposefully Pretty in Medicine for aspiring uh, physicians. And we are actually going to Brooklyn Methodist Hospital to do a hospital tour. So we'll be touring the emergency room, the trauma center. We'll be hearing from some doctors. We had a webinar yesterday. We do bi-monthly webinars um, where they're able to actually hear from uh, physicians and and medical professionals just to kind of instill in them and give them the uh, courage to follow their dreams. And um, we just provide them with support. Like we care so much about the young women and where they're going in life. And um, we we do anything that we can to um, make sure that they are uh, succeeding. So yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Diamond. And that sounds phenomenal. So as a dreamer and tour, we see what you're doing now. What is it that you dream to do, let's say, five to 10 years from now? Oh, I have a laundry list of things that I want to do. We all do. <laughs> um, well, I want to uh, expand purposefully pretty more. I want to uh, outreach. Uh, our mission is to outreach, teach, and inspire. So I would like to outreach, teach, and inspire uh, as many young women as I can, um, even outside of New York. Uh, my plan was to expand in the next few years to, like, Washington, D.C., the DMV area, maybe different states in the next 10 years. Um, so that's plan one. I want to do a TED Talk. That's so random, but I do. <laughs> uh Obviously, uh, finish school, become a doctor, um, start a family, and um, just be happy. Like, that that's my plan for the next 10 years. Absolutely. And if, and if anyone hasn't tapped into their purpose yet and feels like the life they're living doesn't really feel fulfilled, what advice would you give them? Hmm. What advice? I would uh, tell them to come to a purposefully pretty workshop <laughs> because <laughs> not only do we um, cater to young women between the ages of 11 and 18, but we also uh, we're millennials. So we relate to other millennials or even older women, um, adults who may not uh, be tapped into their purpose. Uh, so we would tell them to come to a purposefully pretty workshop. We have a number of uh, purpose identifying activities that we do. Um, I would also tell them to just do some soul searching. Like I identified my purpose by writing. I wrote everything out and I wrote out my dreams. I wrote out my plans. Um, I just wrote everything out. I, I prayed. I looked deep within to uh, figure out why I'm placed on this earth and meditated on it. And here I am. <laughs> wow, look at that. Well, thank you so much, Diamond, for sharing with us your purpose. Thank you. As well as your organization, Purposefully Pretty. How can people reach out to you or support the organization? Okay, so you can follow Purposefully Pretty underscore Inc. on Instagram. That's P-U-R-P-O-S-E-F-U-L-L-Y-P-R-E-T-T-Y underscore I-N-C. I know it's a long word. Um, <laughs> you can also follow me, Style N. The number, uh, the letter N, Grace underscore MD two, the number two B. Um, you can also look at our uh, website www.purposefullyprettyinc.org. Um, and also, I do the purposefully pretty. I am purposefully pretty workshop series for schools and organizations. So you can learn more about that at Diamond Craig. Uh, what is it? Diamond Craig PP dot com. 
Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much, Diamond. And I would just end by saying that, you know, a a lot of times people don't always feel secure in who they are or confident. But, you know, I agree to you. I think that we all are here. We are all on this earth for a greater purpose. And if you ask me, it's to better humanity. It's to do something that will leave this world better than the way it started. And even if it's right in your own community, have you're doing in like the local community and the local schools, you're empowering somebody. You're helping someone, and maybe that person won't end up, um, you know, turning to drugs or just anything that would be negative or harmful to them. Maybe you will empower the next Angela Rye or Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. So I think that it starts small, but you can really get big results. And I think that that's what's purposefully pretty is doing there. On that note, we do have to say goodbye for now. But don't worry, guys. You guys can check us out next weekend, next Sunday, actually, God willing. We'll be here on WATR 90.0 FM, the voice of Harlem. Check us out online at lyvbh.com. And wherever you get your podcast from, before we go, guys, we got a call from Brother Omar. You guys remember him? He had spent the last two years in Puerto Rico, and he was telling me about all the devastation over there. There are people in the mountains locked in their cabins. FEMA is not getting people food. Donald Trump obviously is not being very helpful. He says if you want to help or you want to get in contact with him on ways you can help, you can give him a call at 917-499-7068. Again, that is 917-499-7068. Puerto Rican people are our people. we got to protect them. And even if they weren't, quote unquote our people we still gotta protect them so please do what you can give what you can to Puerto Rico